Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. This week's episode is brought to you by XL Motor, which is the one-stop motorcycle shop. They've currently got a 15% discount on orders over £100 or €100. Euros. Just use code 15 Dobbs. I'll include all of the details in the written description below, but that's valid until I think around about the 8th of October. So you've just got a couple of days left to make the most of that. Right. Let me start with something because this is, I've had so many messages over the past week now about this and I really want to, I want to strongly push on this. Does, really, really strong on this here. So see what you think and I welcome your input on this because I really don't think the UK government care enough. My question, does the UK actually care about electrification? I mean, yeah, it's lovely. You think, great, more people are buying electric cars. That's lovely. And every so often you see an electric car charge and you think, my Lord, here we go. Here's the future. But do they care, if we're being honest? Do they actually care? And this isn't party specific. It's not conservatives or Labour. It doesn't bother me at all. It's nothing to do with that. Does the government really care? Because Monarch and I needed to go into London. And this is just one example. Three days ago, we had to go and pick up Monica's dream camera. So we had to go into London. And I went on to the website to look for a train ticket into London. It's one hour and five minutes, this train, to get into London. And it's around about 45 miles or so. The cost for both of us just to get into London, not the actual underground train from there, but just to get into London, the cost for both of us was £88. £88 for two people for a one hour and six minute journey. It's a complete disgrace. So if you've got a family, let's say you've got three children, you're looking at around about £220. £220 for a day ticket. I mean, some people say, yeah, but Freddie, if you book in advance. Well, guess what? I don't want to book in advance. I don't want to have to book three months early to get a train ticket. I want to think... I'm going into London, or I'm going to Norwich, or I'm going somewhere, and I just want to be able to book a fairly priced train ticket. It is a complete disgrace. And I could go on and on about this, but there are so many incidents. My dad sent me over, for example. I often chat with my dad about this stuff. He sent me over a, an article. Let's see if I can open it up here. And the article is from The Telegraph, and it said... Electric car drivers are now being stalled by scarce charging points. In essence, there are now 15 charging points. Um, okay, electric car num electric cars now outnumber public charging points by at least 15 to 1. That means for every 15 electric car owners, bear in mind there still aren't that many, relatively speaking, in the UK, there's just one electric charger. And bear in mind... When they class it as one electric charge, you could be also within that charging infrastructure there. They're adding up, they're calculating. There will be some that take eight or nine hours to charge, and they're still classing that as an electric charger. I would charge, class that as antiquated. It shouldn't even be classed as an electric charger. Now, I went down to Cornwall a few weeks ago. There are still the same amount of electric chargers on the route as there were about two or three years ago. 
I'll see if I can find some interesting stats here, because, and I'm quoting here from The Telegraph, the government announced in March that it aims to install 300,000 public charging points by 2030 in a £1.6 billion push. This sounds incredible. 300,000 public charging points in just eight years' time. The problem, at the moment, we have 30,000. I mean, it's completely pathetic. And how many of those 30,000 are actually working? Well, I've witnessed it firsthand. In my experience, about 60% of them are either too slow to bother using or they're just out of service. You've got electric car owners, electric motorbike owners, and 75% of them, 75, just let that soak in, 75% of electric vehicle owners in the UK class the UK infrastructure as substandard and not fit for purpose. So the government are pushing and pushing, like I said last week on last week's episode, where the government decided, oh, diesel is the future. That will save the, that will save the world if you buy a diesel vehicle. And then they backtracked on that 10 years later and said, oh, now you shouldn't be driving a, a diesel vehicle. We're going to fine you heavily for it. And now with electrification, they're forcing or they're gently pushing everyone. They're saying electric vehicles are now the vehicle you should buy but they're not willing to put their hands in their pocket and actually give us a good, solid, reliable, electrified system, a good network of electric chargers. And then when you get to a working charger, well, you need to download an app and some apps may be charged £10 a month. Why? When I go to a petrol station, I don't need to download an app and top up the app and make sure all of my details are in. How has the government allowed this to happen? How's it allowed this to happen where you have to be downloading different apps, registering all your details to charge up your car? If that's the case, why doesn't that happen with petrol and diesel? It's the exact same principle. You're filling up your car. There's no difference at all. Yet we're in a situation here where the government's allowed this very, very strange environment where you're having to download a huge amount of different apps to charge up. And they've allowed a situation where you've got cowboys going around setting up these chargers, charging increasingly ridiculous amounts, sometimes more, to charge up your vehicle with electricity than actually fill it up with petrol or diesel. So forget about the cost savings, because they're almost gone already. But now you've got the added hassle of having to queue up every time that you want to charge your vehicle. Charging points not being fun or not functioning the way they should be, and a huge lack of charges relative to the number of vehicles. And of course, as more and more vehicles come along, well, that lack of infrastructure, that lack of network is only going to become more apparent. I don't know if I'm any keener on buying an electric vehicle now than I was five years ago, because the government are not doing a good enough job to prove that we should be moving over to electric. I mean, yes, of course, you've got the environmental point of view, but there's a growing voice also saying that actually electric vehicles are not the answer. I was reading an article earlier this morning about hydrogen-powered vehicles, and China want to be getting millions, and Japan as well, millions of electric or millions of hydrogen-powered vehicles into the network within a matter of years. So actually, is hydrogen going to turn out to be the answer? Certainly, it may be easier from a, a, a filling up point of view. You can kind of piggyback off the petrol stations, probably in an easier way 
than you would with having to wait half an hour minimum to fill up your car. You know, the problem, of course, as well is in London, petrol stations, they're just not physically big enough to have someone waiting for half an hour while the vehicle charges. Space is at a premium in London. And if you've got petrol stations where people are spending two minutes to fill up with petrol or diesel, then it's good. You've got quick turnarounds. You pay for your petrol or diesel. You buy a chocolate bar. Good. You're off. Next person in. With electric, you've got to be waiting half an hour. I just don't know if it's viable. I'm starting to think more and more. This isn't going to happen in the way we thought it was going to happen. I'm really dubious now. And I am, I would class myself, maybe an environmentalist is too far, but I'm extremely pro this type of, you know, saving the world. Extremely pro. But I cannot see a way this is going to happen unless, not just the UK government, governments in general, unless they really figure out a way to take electric cars, not just being a highly expensive, probably in reality city commute, to actually something genuinely mainstream. Because the price of the vehicles is still relatively, it's still eye-watering. You still have to pay a gigantic premium to actually buy these electric vehicles. I don't know where this is going to end. I don't know what's going to look like in five, ten years' time. But I don't think it's progressing anywhere near fast enough. I'll move on for now. I'll just see what other emails I had come in. I may come back to that. But next up... <laughs> The speed limits were secret, secretly changed by one mile an hour and now more people have been fined. So the way it used to work in the UK, there used to be a 10% plus three mile an hour rule. So if, for example, you were doing, uh, if the limit is 30 miles an hour and you were doing 35 miles an hour, you would probably just about get away with it because that is 10%, that's three miles an hour plus plus three, which is 36. So if you're doing under 36 miles an hour, the police would probably have let you off. Now they secretly changed it to 10% plus two miles an hour. So it's caught a lot of people out, although I probably in reality don't have a huge amount of sympathy for those people purely because, uh, you know, speeding, speeding. And I know even in Switzerland, if you're one mile an hour over the limit, you're, you're going to get a hefty fine. So it's probably not too harsh from the police's point of view. Right. Hmm. I had to just mention this because I, I gave back the Kawasaki Z650 RS and I had a huge amount of people, huge amount, saying, Freddie, OK, that's lovely that you've tested out the Z650 RS, but it's time for the Z900 RS because there is a very large large proportion of people, bikers, who rate the Kawasaki Z900RS as the finest retro on the market right now. So that's definitely a bike I need to test out. And I tell you what I'll do. Let me do it now. Let me just check prices of this. We know that the Triumph Bonneville is around about, let's say the price is coming in around about £4,000. But the Kawasaki Z900 RS, it's not always the bike that's, you know, on the tip of your tongue when you say retro. But for those who know, 
it very much is. Let's see if prices re reflect the fact it's not always the headline grabber within the industry. No, oh, well, it holds its value incredibly well. That's quite eye-opening. The, the oldest Z900RS that I can find here is a 2018 model, and I'm on AutoTrader. And it's £7,500. So, in fact, they hold their value superbly well. Really, really well. If you want an investment bike... Go and look at one of those because that, you're not going to be losing any money on that at all. Lovely looking bikes, but don't expect a bargain with these. Cheapest one I can find is a red one, Kawasaki Z900RS. And the reason it's cheap is I've just seen that it's got clip-on bars, it's been modified. I think these, I think they look better standard with the normal bars. 950cc, 110 horsepower, 13,000 miles on the clock. Lovely looking bikes though, really, really nice. Go and check those out. Bear that in mind if you're looking at a retro bike. Sometimes goes under the radar, but for those who know, that's a seriously good bike. Right, I move on. Freddy. After being, mm, after being messed around by Triumph for my first bike after passing my test a couple of weeks ago, I started looking at an Interceptor again. I've now bought an Interceptor 650, first registered in February 2022, but made in 2021. It looks great. I, I think I've got a good deal at £4,750. However, the bike has been serviced, but not precisely to the service book. Hence, I think the three-year warranty may be invalid. I'm hoping it won't cause too many problems, and at that price, I'm willing to take a risk. What are your thoughts on checking service history on second-hand bikes? Love the channel and the podcast. Nick. Um, Nick, for one, I think you got a very good deal there. For one-year-old Interceptor at 4750 I think that's an exceptionally good deal so you should be very happy with that and it looks like you're delighted with it so congrats on the bike um, I agree with you I think the I think potentially the warranty may may be invalid because it hasn't been kept up religiously to the book however knowing the kind of bike the Interceptor is it's a very simple cost-effective bike. I wouldn't let it worry you too much. Don't lose any sleep over it. And in reality, I don't think you're going to be having any issues with that bike anyway. I don't think you will have a warranty claim requirement within the first three years with that bike. And if you do, they're so simple and cheap, I wouldn't let it worry you. Just, yeah, take the happiness from the fact you got a good deal for it and don't worry about that. But in general, if I'm looking at a bike, uh, yes, I, I would always, it's always a benefit, it's always a plus to have it with a full service history because it just shows that it's always been loved. But I would just look at it more from a point of view, has it been at least loved recently? You know, has it had a service? Has it had a check over? So at least it's now in decent condition. I usually worry much more about the past one or two years service history than I would about the previous four, five, six, seven, eight years service history, for example. Um, I would also, and this is probably a bit stupid, but I would also 
often just trust trust the wording uh, from from the seller if they would say, look, it's it's been it's been serviced by me because a lot of bikes are serviced by their owners. Um, and I would just see if I get a good vibe from the person. If they say they look after it, do the oil changes themselves, I would just have to take the word for it. You know, the there's only been one car, to give you an example. There's only been one car I have ever owned where the engine has exploded and it's blown up and the car has genuinely died. Only one vehicle in my entire life has actually died. And that is the only vehicle I have ever bought from a dealer for a premium price with low mileage, full service history and bought from a dealer. By far the worst car I've ever bought or worst vehicle I've ever bought in my life has been the only vehicle that I paid a premium for so I could get one with full service history and bought from a dealer. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. Often, often it's the vehicles with higher mileage um, that are the more reliable ones because they're tried and tested. I move on. Freddie, let me just see how I'm doing here. One sec. Good. From uh, this is from the US. Freddie, I wanted to send you an email as I've been agonizing about this for some time now. I've decided that simple biking really is the way to go. So I decided to sell my new Triumph T120 and look for something used, which costs around about $7,000, which I can throw around and not get too upset about if I drop it or scratch it. My main dilemma now is what to get. The Enfields are a little underpowered as uh, as traffic where I live tends to move at either 45 to 55 miles an hour. You might argue the interceptor, um, you might argue uh, the interceptor, but it was really vibey and the seat uh, and the seat is a bench seat, a hard one you might find in a London park. So what would you suggest? Maybe you could do a search um, on modern retro on a US site for your next podcast. Okay, okay, right, so seven and a half thousand dollars with the main aim that it's something that you can really rip about, rag around a bit and not get a bit heartbroken when you're, for example, $15,000 Triumph T120 gets a scratch on it, right. There are two bikes for me that spring to mind here. Knowing that you like the T120, you're going to like that traditional classic styling. You need something around about 60 horsepower plus. There are two bikes here that spring to mind for me. The first one, let me just open Cycle Trader here. The first one is the a bike that I, I tested for a month. I had this for a month just before I started YouTube. Triumph sent it to me for a month and it was one of the most sublime bikes I've ever tested. It was the Triumph Street Twin. It's 65 horsepower and it is the most sublime handling bike I think I've ever tried. It's also more than quick enough to keep up with anything on the real road. So first of all, I want to just see Triumph Street Twin. It, it, it looks brilliant, but it's not so overtly stylish. Uh, as the T120 where you're going to worry about it too much. It just feels, it, it does feel a bit more like you can really rip it around the place and not worry about it too much. And I would hope 
Let's do, what should I do? Uh, shall I do, I'll do Florida. Let's do Florida, see what there is there. Okay. I went to zip code. Let's see if I can do it without a zip code. Ooh, cycle trader. Mm, okay, I'll try another one, Toby, and see what I can find. Here we go, I'll try auto trader. I didn't know you had an auto trade in, trader in the US. Right, let's see if this requires a postcode. So I'm going for Triumph. It will also be interesting to see what the price differences are like compared to the UK, because in the UK you can get a street triple probably just below just below £5,000 or so, but let's see. In fact, oh, here we go. I was about to say, uh, Triumph Street Twin, sorry. Phew, I didn't think you had it. Triumph Street Twin, Street Twin. I don't know if I said triple before, but it's a Triumph Street Twin. Most sublime handling bike I've ever tried. Had it for a month and let's see what they've got. Here we go, here we go. Okay, it's up, it's up. I will do results by price low to high. There are 27 results here on American Auto Trader. And uh, oh, here you go. I've got one for you, Toby. 2018. And I, these are just superb bikes. This will fit you perfectly. This is everything you could wish for, I promise you. As a lovely red Triumph Street Twin 2018 model. And have a listen to this, 547 miles ridden in the past four years. The price, 4,600 US dollars. Well, I think, I think that will tick everything you're looking for, Toby. And it's $500 under what you'd be looking for. This is a bike that I would genuinely buy myself. And let me just see what else. Yeah, I mean, here, you've got... You've got a couple coming in at about 8,000, another one here at 6,000, uh, 7,500. Okay. Okay. You, need to, you may need to do some haggling on some of the others, but it can be done. You can get one for just, just under $7,000. You can even get one from Triumph Cleveland, actually from Triumph. Uh, for $7,500, and that's from Triumph itself. So if you go onto US eBay or something like that, no question at all, you'll be able to get one for around about the $6,500 mark. So that's the first one. The second one, just to give you a little bit of uh, a different flavor, Toby. The second one, I want to read out a, um, a message that someone sent to me. Let's see if I can find it. Here we go. This is from a guy, a rider in the UK, who's owned a Honda CB1100 and also a Kawasaki Z900RS. He rates them both very highly, but he gave me a good bit of advice. So have a listen to this, anyone considering a Honda CB1100. That's the underrated Honda modern classic. And he said, Freddie, as an owner of both the 2018 and 2013 Honda CB1100 in my life, I would strongly steer people towards the Honda CB1100 um, up to or from 2013. So towards the 2013 model. The later model 
felt much more heavy and slower. If this was a change of emissions rules, strangling it or not, I'm not sure, but the 2013 model was su superb in every way. A bargain for any used buyer with lots of mods out there to tweak it. Um, just check, I've read everything there. Lots of mods to tweak it. Okay, here we go. So let me see if I can find a slightly older Honda CB1100. I Ideally before, before 2018. So... Honda. This will be a more powerful bike, so you may find it's more power than what you actually want. But let's see what we can find here, just to give you another idea. Honda CB1100, and I will say the maximum year. Actually, doesn't look like they sold them for long in the US. Let me go for a 2013 model. Let's see what we can find you here. Right, nine results. Nine results, and let me do results, price low to high. The cheapest one. Oh, Toby, I mean, this is just, just glorious. US consumer advice here I'm sending you over. I found one here. I mean, this is just fantastic. Right, I found one. They're coming at this good value in the US, these. A 2013 Honda CB1100. Price reduced to $5,000. That's the 2013 model. I will be honest, this one has been modified. It's had the rear, the rear fender has been removed to make it more streamlined. I prefer the classic one. And the classic one, I found one here from a dealer in Ohio, seven and a half thousand US dollars. Bear in mind that's from a dealer. So if you can get a private one on eBay or something like that, you will get it for under the $7,000 mark. That is a superb amount of bike for the money and they look fantastic, absolutely brilliant. Lovely black one here, CB1100. Let me just read this out to you. It's got that classic chrome front headlamp. I cannot tell you how good these bikes look. It really is amazing. Also, the older model before the facelifted one, they've got a nicer, more classic style tank as well. Um, here we go, listen to this one in Ohio. Used 2014 Honda CB1100 motorcycle for sale in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, with 17,000 miles. This pre-owned Honda CB1100 is offered with engine guards and driving lights. Full history. You will not go wrong with that. Toby, I hope you've, I've helped. That is the Triumph Street Twin 900cc and also the Honda CB1100. Both of them you'll be over the moon with. Right, next, next up. Uh, Freddie, a question for your podcast. With the start of October, only one day away. Apologies for the delay with this. Only one day away. Uh, quite a number of bikers will be hanging up their helmet and gloves until next year. What are your thoughts on owning a winter hack? Winter hack, uh, I don't know if that's a UK term, but that basically means just buy a, a very cheap bike that you can rag through the winter and not worry about the salt corroding everything. I say this because a friend of mine, I continue, I say this because a friend of mine who has a very smart Ducati V4S has just bought a Pan-European um, for £1,000 to continue riding during the autumn and winter. I personally insure and tax my bikes for 12 months and take it out all year, but I do suffer the consequences in the bike's cosmetics. Your thoughts, please, Anthony. Yeah, 
Yeah, Anthony, this is a really interesting point because me personally, if I speak from my own my own uh, experience, I don't buy a winter hack, but only because it may be slightly too tight. Um, I always wonder if it would be too tight money-wise if I buy a cheap winter hack and then it ends up being unreliable. Uh, I'm also dreadful at even maintaining the Bonneville, so the thought of owning two bikes is probably slightly too much hassle for me at the moment. Hence, I just spray a huge amount of WD-40 all over my bike. And I've actually found, honestly, hand on heart, riding for 11 or 12 years now, that I've never had any spots of rust appearing on my bikes because I spray WD-40 over the whole thing and I do ride year round. But, but it's a very fair point that it does, it does damage your bikes, you know, riding in the salt year round. Um, those harsh conditions, you know, never really getting dry properly. Um, and a winter hack will of course completely protect it from that. The only thing I think is an interesting thing to weigh up. A thousand pounds for the bike for the winter hack Let's say, let's just say, say for argument, £200 for insurance, £100 for tax, that's 1300 There will be going things wrong and things you need to fix. Should we just say £300 for random things to keep it going? You're looking at about £1,600 a year to keep this winter hack on the road. There's an argument to say that with that money, that, that would go a long way to just kind of giving your your pride and joy, uh, you know, a, a nice refresh in May when the good weather comes, because £1,600 in May, once all of the salt's gone, even in March or April in reality, once all the salt's gone, once the weather's warmer, the bike will dry better, you know, that's a lot of money to put towards your pride and joy and actually get it back up to the standards that you wanted it to, instead of having that winter hack there. I get the winter hack side of things, I, I do. And maybe it would be a different matter if I had, you know, a £20,000 bike. If I had a £20,000 bike, I would be much more inclined to get a winter hack uh, as opposed to my 3K Bonneville, for example. 3K Bonneville, there's no point. But yeah, if I had, for example, a beautiful Indian with loads of chrome or a beautiful Harley, you know, all chromed out, I think I would have to get a winter hack because, yeah, the that really would not be good in the winter. I don't think I would ride an expensive Pride and Joy in the salty conditions. So yes, I would. I'm thinking about it now. I would buy a winter hack if it was an expensive, you know, kind of uh, bike like a Harley, a high-end Ducati, yes. But if it's something like my Bonneville about 3K, no, no point at all, no point. Um, interesting that i like that anthony thank you for sending that over it's, it's good good talking point happy riding through the winter i also do the same as well so happy riding next up oh this is from jb i had to read this out because uh this is with regards to the big cruiser the suzuki intruder jb says um intruders are big cruisers the biggest of that family being the m1800r and particularly the boss version unique looking bikes huge performance Hayabusa bits, but not cheap, and they're collectible. The Kawasaki VN1600, mean streak, possibly better value. However, however, and I welcome any input on this, have a listen to this. 
JB continues, it leads me to the bigger question. These bikes typified a time of excess. Is there a place for powerful, heavy gas guzzling? I added the gas guzzling. I'm, I'm into that American vibe now. Um, fuel guzzling, uh, power cruisers and muscle bikes in this new world of EVs, retro lightweights and tightening rules. JB from Scotland says, um, my top five muscle bikes, Yamaha VMAX Gen 1, which he owns, Rocket 3R from 2020, uh, Triumph Trident Storm, Ducati Diavel and Suzuki B King. I, I'll take you back a few days here, JB, because I was at a family event on Saturday. Um, my family members, they, they actually, they live in Alaska. Um, and they come back from Alaska once, once every few months and we have a family get together, you know, kind of reunion. So it's great to see them uh, come back from the US and we all get together. And my auntie was chatting to me and she was saying, Freddie, how, how do you feel about, you know, motorbikes? And uh, do you ever feel guilty for, for riding and promoting them? And I said to her, no, not one bit, not even close, because we're humans. We're, we're born to explore and we're naturally curious. That's what sets us apart from animals. We, we must travel. Yes, we can find eventually more environmentally friendly ways of doing so, I'm sure, but you can never take away travel and exploring an adventure from people because for me, we then, we just turn into a, a vegetable without the joy, the excitement, the freedom that you get with any kind of travel. You know, whether it's the plane that my auntie got on to come from Anchorage in Alaska over to the UK. Of course, that's hugely awful for the environment. Um, but we must do this. We can't just lock ourselves away and, and be glad that we're saving the environment because we're not driving or flying or traveling in any way at all. And we're not buying anything because everything's bad for the environment. There gets a point for me that you say that humans, we will not change. We, we, we must have this. We must have this excitement and travel. Otherwise we are, you know, we are no different than animals. You know, that's what we do, humans. Look at it, always go back all the way to the Vikings and before. That love of adventure, of traveling, of exploring new places. That's, that's such a huge part of what we do as humans. But can it be done more environmentally friendly? as JB says, and, and is it over for these big bikes? Yeah. I don't think it is. I, I don't think it is. Yes, with tightening regulations and things like that, you know, it, it does sometimes strangle a bike, but I just think we just, we as humans have to be more ingenious about how we get around these things. Yes, we always need to be making more environmentally friendly vehicles. Yes, things like the Rocket are incredibly unenvironmentally friendly, but I'm still glad that these bikes exist because we do need that excess. You know, if I see a Mercedes G-Wagon, a Ferrari, an old, or even a new Ford Mustang, I can't help but smile because these kinds of vehicles exist and these kinds of people with the passion for these vehicles also exist. So, uh, 
yeah, from a, a green credential side, you know, yes, maybe we could all be riding around on smaller motorbikes, but then in the same vein, the same thought, I don't want to push it to a point, JB, where, you know, you could get to a point where everyone's riding more economical scooters or motorbikes, and then, well, why not go one more and just cycle bicycles? I... Uh, I hope it's not the end of these big bikes. I don't think it is, but I welcome anyone's opinion. I'll read it out if anyone thinks I'm I'm wrong or right, um, uh, because I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But no, I don't think it's the end, and I hope it's not the end. And I, I do love a bit of excess. I really do, whether it's a, a big brute of a motorbike or a ridiculous 4x4 or sports car, you know, Otherwise, we're all just existing, you know, and I know we need to save the world, but I, I, uh, you know, I don't just want to, I don't just want to exist, you know, I want to feel alive. JB, thank you as always. All my best to Scotland. Um, final one. Freddie, having finally passed uh, the full bike license this year, congratulations. I have just bought what I feel like is the bike I've always meant, uh, I was always meant to have, the 2011 Triumph Speedmaster 865. Same engine as mine. As soon as I saw it and then rode it, I felt like this is me and everything I wanted in a bike. So my question is regarding going to Europe as I now want to plan a few weeks riding in May 2023 into and around Spain on my own, but I've got no idea what requirements are needed and also any suggestions or tips would be gratefully received as I'm still a novice with this biking thing. Thanks again and eagerly awaiting the podcast. Um, yes, Simon. Easy, easy. The, for me, the best bit of advice I can give you is um, you don't need to overplan it uh, or overthink it. As long as you've got your motorbike um, and some waterproofs, you'll be absolutely fine. You could go even just with that, the clothes on your back and some waterproofs in your bag. But the things that are essential, a set of waterproofs, because if you get wet, it's just a living hell. So a set of waterproofs, your V5 logbook, and also your insurance printed out on paper. A small, simple tool set, just for example, so you can unscrew the battery if anything bad happens with that. Uh, a bike lock. And I would also say, you know, a quad lock charger or something like that. So your bike can always be charging your phone the whole time. For me, that's, that's a game changer having that. Just to know that your phone's always fully charged the whole time, that is a hugely important point. Um, apart from that, no. Uh, oh, one other thing. Don't carry a backpack because it may feel fine when you're riding around just in the UK, but after about an hour or so, the backpack, even if it's a light backpack, it starts getting really painful on your back. Get some panniers or some way to attach all of the luggage and don't have a, a backpack, ideally. If you do, just make it really light because you'll feel so much freer without having that, uh, that extra weight on your back. But apart from that, you, you know, you don't even need to be planning any more than when you wake up in the morning for the rest of the day because with Airbnb and booking.com, you can just book as you go. Oh, Simon, you'll love it. UK to Spain on a 865 Speedmaster. 
fantastic. We'll leave it at that. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. Thank you to Moto. Go and check them out for the 15% discount. Happy riding, everyone, and I will speak to you all in the next one. Thank you.